This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Kathy Finelli, the director of Gainesville Rabbit Rescue, or GRR, a nonprofit organization founded in 1998 by two University of Florida students. GRR's mission is to rescue, rehabilitate, and adopt out rabbits to loving homes, as well as to educate current and potential rabbit owners. To that in one fact many people may find surprising is that rabbits are classified as both pets and livestock. Another lesser known of darker details that rabbits are the third most euthanized animal in shelters annually. GRR takes in all rabbits that need a home or to be rehomed and won't refuse any rabbit regardless of disability, illness, age, or temperament. The organization's stated main goal is to see that the right rabbit winds up with the right family. And to help cultivate that probability, GRR screens all adoptive families to ensure the rabbit is placed in a secure and loving home. We'll address various aspects of rabbit rescue, as well as the care and feeding of pet rabbits, and more about Gainesville Rabbit Rescue when I speak with Kathy Finelli in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Mark James, who in 2021, as a tribute to his late beloved dog Hank, built a cabinet in the vein of those little free libraries, you know, take a book, leave a book. But this one, called Hank's Bark Box, applies that principle to pet food, meaning someone in need can take some cat or dog food from the box or donate food into the box. Nearly two years later, after he put up the box outside his St. Petersburg home, I thought we'd check in with Mark to see how it's going with Hank's Bark Box, what he's learned from the experience, including those occasions when people have uh, come by and taken out all the food, and maybe a notable story or two he might like to share. More on Hank's Bark Box later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss all manners of rabbits with Kathy Vanelli with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Kathy Finelli on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Duncan. Thank you very much for having um, me represent the rabbits here today. For sure. Well, thank you for joining us. And, of course, I want to explore various aspects of Gainesville Rabbit Rescue, including its mission and history. So, as I mentioned in the opening, Gainesville Rabbit Rescue was founded 25 years ago by two University of Florida students. Where does your history connect with that history? Um, I joined the group probably somewhere about two to three years after it founded. Uh, And so I've been with the group at least 21 years now, 22 years in that neighborhood. Wow. So a long long-term investment in rabbit rescue for sure that well you're exactly the right person to be talking about these very things then clearly so this probably goes back then quite a few years in light of what you just said but i'd love to hear about your very first rabbit that you lived with the the very first rabbit i lived with was um mr bunny i found him in my backyard actually on a july 4th day um Many, many years ago, about 20 years ago, 21 years ago, yeah. uh, being stalked by one of the neighborhood cats. And I brought him in and knew only 
three things. One, he needed food. Two, he needed water. And three, he didn't belong out in the wild because he was a pet. Um, and I tried to get a hold of Gainesville Rabbit Rescue to take him from me because at that point in time, I really did not want a rabbit, knew nothing about them except, as I said, for food and water. And they were full. And so I thought, well, I'll just foster him. Once he's adopted, I'm through with rabbits. And here I am 20-something years later and still have rabbits of my own now, three of them actually. So that's how I became involved. And I think a lot of people become involved that way, whether it's cats, dogs, or rabbits, um, that they find an animal and cannot find a place to put it. And so therefore keep it, want to foster it. And then when the time comes to give it up, it's either difficult to do that and they realize the need is great or they can't give up that particular animal. Yeah. Well, that story kind of brings me to a couple of questions. One is, how was it immediately apparent to you when you found first kind of came across Mr. Bunny that it was a pet rabbit as opposed to a wild rabbit, which might in that area have been just as likely to run into? It was It was really very uh, kind of late morning, early afternoon, and at first, I did believe it was a wild rabbit until I was very cautiously walking up to him thinking, how am I going to catch this rabbit? I had a carrier with me, a uh, cat carrier with me, and I thought, wow, this is really going to be difficult. And literally, he almost jumped in my arms as if to say, I really don't belong out here. <laughs> and so I've been waiting for somebody was, like you to come along. Yeah, uh, uh, I don't belong in here, uh, so please just get me out of this jungle that I've been turned into and I can't survive it. And that's how, as I said, literally almost jumped in my arms. And I do hear that quite frequently from people who will call us and say they rescued a rabbit, um, that they walked right up to it and he just sat there or she just sat there and waited for them to pick them up. So a lot of them are terrified out in the wild and really don't want to be there and can't be there for their survival. Yeah. And I guess uh, by contrast, generally speaking, I would think a wild rabbit would take off running the other direction if a human kind of was approaching with any, got too close at all. Absolutely. Wild rabbits will run. Some pet rabbits will run as well. Um, Really, the the one distinguishing factor for people to rescue uh, pet rabbits is in the wild, there are no white rabbits to, to really speak of. Uh, there is, of course, a rare exception here and there, but there's really no wi- uh, wild rabbits that are all white. There's no wild rabbits that are brown and white, or speckled, uh, that type of, or, or black, that type of thing. So to see anything other than uh, a brown rabbit, uh, chances are it is definitely a pet rabbit. Yeah. Brown rabbits can be pet rabbits. There's very uh, there's some distinguishing ways of telling by shapes of heads and, and therefore, which really boils down to an expert look really quickly looking. But if the rabbit doesn't seem to belong there, it probably is a pet. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I guess the other question that comes from that initial uh, sort of encounter with Mr. Bunny and then becoming a kind of a obviously long-term rabbit uh, 
rescuer and fan. Back then, when you were thought you were just going to be sort of fostering Mr. Bunny, and then ended up staying, and and then you obviously have been on this path ever since, really helping uh, rabbits and living with them. What what kind of initially appealed to you uh, about Mr. Bunny? What is it? What was it about rabbits that you thought? Wow, I really, I really like this animal. I like its its characteristics. I like just spending time with it. What, what, what particularly grabbed you back at the beginning? For me, there were a number of reasons. One of which was I, I really never knew that rabbits could be very social. They were quiet, so therefore they weren't social. Was my initial. Uh, reaction to having a rabbit, you know, they're not barking at me for attention. But I really, the draw was the very um, quick emotional connection to this animal. And even back then, one of the other things that was really, for me, a quick connection was the fact being a vegetarian, I didn't have to have meat in the refrigerator to feed my animal. So that was a real big connection for me. Mm. But as I said, the emotional connection quickly came when you start petting them and you, you realize that this is a prey animal who's giving you his his sense of, oh, I can trust you. You're not going to kill me. Uh, that was a very quick emotional response on my part because, as I've explained to many people, when you call a dog, you expect them to come to you. When you call a cat, you're kind of like, well, if they come, they come to me. That's great. <laughs> but when you call your rabbit and he comes to you, it's such a great sign of trust. Yeah. That on an emo- it really is a very emotional level with rabbits for that. That's really interesting. So I guess the question is then... Was it always that those kinds of things? Like over the years, I guess I'm curious if, if what what appealed to you initially about Mr. Bunny and the thing you just described with that that quick emotional connection, has anything changed over the years about what you find appealing about rabbits, or is it, is it largely the same as it was at the very beginning? I think what really has kept me involved with rabbits and uh, my thought process about them is the the complicated little animal that they truly are, that there's not a lot known about them and that every day, even 20 years later, 20-something years later, I can learn things about them and be amazed at the animal they really are and how intelligent, how social, how fabulous a pet they can be in the right home. And not everyone should have a rabbit, just like not everyone should have a cat or a dog. Um, We want them in a home where people are going to appreciate them, of course. But they definitely, definitely are a very intelligent. And they get their, the thing I'm still amazed at is that even though they're quiet, they really get their point across to you if you're late with their breakfast. They will pick up their bowl and toss it as if to say, excuse me, but my food tellers are not here. Oh, wow. That's a clear message. Yeah. Yeah, definitely will give you clear messages about coming up to you and and grooming you and and licking you and then kind of very slowly nipping at you um, because they're grooming you. They're pulling through your fur, but unfortunately we as humans don't have any. But it's very gentle, and it's very much, uh, again, a feeling of a connection with an animal that, 
as a prey animal has shown you so much trust that you really can uh, relate to that. And that's how I like to have people think is to put themselves in the position of the animal as a prey animal. Stop thinking in terms of predator. Start thinking in terms of prey animal. And all of their behavior falls into place. All of the reasons why they do what they do becomes very clear. And then we have to work in those realms. But that trust that you build with them is an amazing thing um, for most of us who have rabbits and who understand them as best as we can possibly understand them. Yeah. They will talk to us. We just have to learn their language. Right. Understand what they're saying in their own uh, specific way. And it sounds like if you're paying much attention at all, they are communicating very clearly, just in a way that you have to get accustomed to. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, so prior to becoming a Mr. Bunny launching and becoming a rabbit person, uh, what had been your history with other pets? Were there dogs or, and or cats in your history? I've always had in the past, uh, and at the time that I did rescue Mr. Bunny, uh, I did have a dog and I had my own indoor cat. And those are the, really the only pets I'd had uh, as a child and then as an adult, uh, maybe a bird here and, here and there, a parrot as a child, yeah. and um, some fish. But basically, like most children who grew up in the city, I had uh, cats and dogs, and that was, that was my only beginning. And at that point in time, I only knew one person who had said to me, uh, at one of my jobs that they had a pet rabbit and was amazed that the rabbit lived in the house. And so when I did find Mr. Bunny, that was why I knew he didn't belong out there because I had had this very, very brief association with someone who had a pet rabbit who lived in the house. And um, other than that, as I said, I'd only dealt with cats and dogs who were very different, of course. Yeah. And... Uh, do you still have cat, cats and or dogs, or is it strictly rabbits for yeah, you now? Right now, uh, I do have um, some dogs, and, and uh, we we don't have any cats, but we have some dogs. Mm-hmm. And we have our rabbits, and we've been really, really fortunate over the course of years to have dogs who don't even look like they know the rabbits are in the house, or that the rabbits are rabbits, that the rabbits aren't just other dogs in the house. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, because that was that was my question. Is like a lot of times dogs uh, are super interested in, in rabbits, and that could be tricky in a household like that. Absolutely, because again, as sweet as your dog is, dogs are predators. Uh, but we've been really fortunate to have dogs that, as I said before, just really don't even understand that there's there's rabbits in the house and that there's predators and the rabbits are prey animals. And there are certain breeds, of course, that were were bred to hunt rabbits or to hunt uh, rats and so forth. So they sometimes are not going to be a great match for a family. If they have um, uh, dachshunds, for instance, I believe they were originally bred to go actually into a rabbit hole. There are exceptions, of course, to every, every rule, so to speak. And each animal is an individual. And so what the breed is supposed to do and what your individual dog will do are two different things. Yeah. We've had people with greyhounds have, have uh, rabbits. Um, wow. One of, our, one of our fosterers has a 
a long-haired dachshund, a miniature dachshund, and that dog does not bother the rabbits. Of course, caution is always advised, and we never really want to see rabbits left alone until it's really known that the dog is definitely not going to uh, cause any harm to a rabbit. And so, again, every animal is an individual, and people have to judge um, their dog as to whether or not they would be able to have a rabbit live in the home with them. Yeah. And on that note, what we do is during an adoption, when we're talking to people, if they express the fact that they do have a dog and we ask what kind of a breed. And so we will have people come with their dogs to the rescue so that we can actually observe the dog in the presence of rabbits in a safe environment for both the rabbit and the dog. That makes sense. Yeah, and then we can generally tell whether or not the dog is going to be aggressive towards the rabbit, um, wanting to hunt it or even sometimes play with it. Uh, but play in general with a rabbit, with a dog, can be very devastating anyway, even though they don't mean the rabbit any harm. Yeah. I guess just because it's a prey animal, it probably gets it doesn't take much to get it spooked by uh, a dog that might be playing but still might be a bit too rough for that for that rabbit i would guess right so uh, one question too that uh, as you were mentioning some of the the dog related things when you mentioned the greyhound was the greyhound a a retired racing greyhound yes wow that's that's phenomenal it is an amazing thing and the the other thing that's amazing is the people that have the greyhound understand what they need to do in order to keep the rabbit safe And also to keep the dog happy because if you have a dog that really has a very high prey drive to it, the dog's not going to be happy having a a rabbit maybe three or four rooms over because they're going to smell it. They're going to be on high alert all the time. So, again, it's not fair to the rabbit and it's not fair to the dog to have the dog agitated uh, in a way because it it understands that there's that rabbit in the home. And so those are some of the things we want people to understand. It's not just for the safety of the rabbit. It's for the happiness of the pets that are already in the home. Sure. Everybody has to coexist uh, across whatever species they might be. Absolutely. Yeah. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Kathy Finelli, the director of Gainesville Rabbit Rescue, which seeks to rescue, rehabilitate, and adopt out rabbits to good-loving homes, as well as to educate current and potential rabbit owners. If you'd like to ask Kathy a question about rabbits, caring for them, other related topics, or offer a comment, uh, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, even though you weren't a the Gainesville Rabbit Rescue, at its very inception, you've been there virtually from the beginning, you could pretty much say. So how would you describe the way that uh, Gainesville Rabbit Rescue might have changed overall this basically now 25 years? I think the biggest change for the rescue has been uh, the ability to keep all of our rabbits indoors. When we first, when I first started with the rescue, we had foster homes, but we also had some homes that had property and had some hutches, and we would keep them outside to save their lives. We always adopted in-house only, but over the course of years, we were able to convert a barn into a 
shelter for the rabbits. I think that's one of our major accomplishments that we, we all feel is, has been fabulous. And that's, that happened probably about 10, 11 years ago. And so they're not outside in any kind of weather or uh, with, especially here in Florida, this heat wave is a killer of rabbits. It's yeah. 85 degrees and above, rabbits really start to feel the heat and feel uh, uncomfortable, number one, and then it can lead to heat, heat exhaustion and, and heat stroke. Mm. Um, so, you know, I jokingly tell people, your rabbit is wearing a fur coat, and that's not good for rabbits in the summertime. And rabbits don't pant like a dog would, and they, they breathe basically only through their nose. So heat for rabbits is a killer. Anything over 85 degrees and the rabbit really starts to suffer. So if anyone does listening does have a rabbit outside, especially if you're not going to keep them in there permanently during the course of the day, bring them in for the heat of the day. Um, and there are some things that we tell people who, for whatever reason, can't bring their rabbits in that they can do. Put a frozen water bottle out there. It'll act as a, a cooling device. Mm. Um, put a, a, a tile outside that they can sit on tiles remain kind of cool uh, but that's one of the biggest accomplishments we've had i think the other thing that we're very proud of is if we were not the first which i do believe we were we have a voucher program for people who bought their rabbits from a breeder uh, a pet store we have a voucher program that really is exceptionally inexpensive to have their rabbit spayed or neutered by rabbit savvy vet. And so that's a huge accomplishment because to bring the cost down from what the vet would normally charge to what the voucher cost has been a very, uh, it is difficult. Uh, we want our vets to, to make money, of course, because there are not of enough exotic vets, especially in other parts of the country or even the state of Florida. So those are two major accomplishments. Yeah. And one of the major accomplishments, Duncan, believe it or not, is being in existence for 25 years. Yeah, that's uh, no we, small thing, we, for sure. It really, we've seen rescues come and go, unfortunately, because they haven't been able to develop a volunteer base. They haven't been able to develop a great relationship with their with their veterinarians um, to provide top-notch care at a reasonable or even below their standard cost for those animals. So there's a lot to be said for a rescue that's been in existence 25 years. For uh -oh. sure. Well, so and I'm also... I'm really proud of that. Yeah, as you all should be, because that is impressive. I mean, rescues of all different kinds face so many struggles, and sometimes they'll become a, a huge obstacle several years in, a combination of things, financials, other acts of God, wh whatever it might be. So to keep going for 25 years is truly impressive. That's great. And, and some of what you were just saying about that and some of the other things that you're proudly uh, pointing to kind of dovetail with something I was going to ask about, and then coincidentally an email came in sort of related as well. So one of the things I was going to ask you about, of course, is, you know, over the years you hear more and more uh, about people adopting or worse, buying rabbits impulsively. Most notoriously, you see this at Easter time. So I guess I'm wondering what typically happens with those Easter purchases and adoptions when people realize 10 days after Easter, if, if not sooner, uh, that they kind of made a grave mistake and they were just sort of doing like an impulse buy, essentially, with that, that rabbit. 
And um, the email basically says something similar warning, how many, how many rabbits have been turned into GIR by people buying rabbits for pets and then let them go. And this is from Florida Voices for Animals, apparently because they say uh, FW, uh, FVA has gone to many commission meetings trying to stop the sale of rabbits at retail stores and all the rescues in this area are overwhelmed with rabbits. Absolutely. Uh, Every rabbit that we take in, uh, we have another proud accomplishment, um, is we've never had an oof-litter where we've taken in two rabbits and we've kept them together and we were responsible for the litter being born. We've never had an oof-litter. But we've taken in plenty of oof-litters from people who bought two bunnies at uh, a store that sells them, and the clerks have said to them, this is a boy, this is a boy, you have two boys, you have two girls. And lo and behold, three months later, they now have not only one litter, but possibly two litters of babies being born. So every rabbit that we have has come in from an owner relinquished that we know there, or from a county shelter or a rabbit that we found loose. This weekend, we had two rabbits, one running around behind an exotic vet's office in our Orlando, and one, we got a phone call from the motels in Ocala that one of their patrons had checked out and checked out two days beforehand, and all of a sudden, they found a rabbit covered with a blanket in a cage under some brush two days later, mm. and that was in El Palo. So these are how our rabbits come into rescue. Yeah. We don't purchase rabbits. We, we take them from owner relinquished. Normally after Easter, about two months, three months after Easter, we refer to it as the Easter bunny dump season. Yeah. But sadly, we also have a Christmas dump season mm. uh, about just three months after Christmas, and... The pandemic has caused a tremendous amount of homeless pets because people were home. They went out and they bought a pet, whether it was a rabbit, cat, or dog, and now they're back at work. And the calls continuously come in that people don't have time for their rabbit. Um, The sad part about that is when I get a phone call from someone who says they have a free roamer, meaning a rabbit that's never caged. It has access to every room in the house. Yeah. And they don't have time for that rabbit because now if we rescue that rabbit, we don't have a lot of volunteers or fosters who are able to do that. So we're going to have to cage this animal. We're going to have to get the rabbit spayed or neutered. And at this point in time, we are also vaccinating against a disease that only rabbits and hares get, no other animal gets it, but luckily there's a a vaccination program we have in place now. Um, So that's where all of our rabbits come from. Yeah. We we don't have an area. You'll talk to a lot of rescues who will say, well, our area is um, this part of Florida, that part of Florida. We don't have an area. We rescue rabbits from anywhere in the state. The only thing that prevents us from rescuing rabbits is space and the ability to take care of that rabbit. So we have constantly about 90 rabbits always in rescue. And they come from uh, Citrus County Animal Control, Lake County Animal Control, uh, Jacksonville, Alachua County Animal Control, 
Marion County, they come from all over the state. So, again, the only restriction we have is do we have enough space for those rabbits and the ability to take care of them, not only volunteer-wise, financially. Yeah. And that's why we've been in business for as long as we have been, because we have very good people taking care of the rabbits and the rescue. We have great volunteers um, because you can take one step over that line and you're no longer a rescue. And we never want to take that one step over that line. But it sure sounds like you have your hands full. And the fact that there's no boundaries other than just the state of Florida, but that obviously covers a lot of ground. That's impressive. So I guess one question, just do what you've described, just happens day to day and and for much less for 25 years. How are you guys funded typically? We're funded totally by donations from uh, the general public, our own volunteers, our own fosterers. We do not get any money from any county, state, or federal government. Wow. we, We do apply for grants when grants are available, but notoriously, grant money is for cats or dogs. Uh, There's very few grant money allocated for rabbits and small animals. And I do want to say at this time, uh, we not only rescue rabbits about five years ago, I guess it is seven years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, we started rescuing guinea pigs. Mm. So we have at any given moment about 25 guinea pigs up for adoption as well as rabbits. Um, I don't know that much about guinea pigs. We have a really great guinea pig fosterer who takes care of all the questions and who takes care of all the adoptions for those those little ones. Um, but again, there's very little money out there from any large corporations for guinea pigs and rabbits. So we are totally funded out of the kindness of people who love rabbits, who love guinea pigs. That's how we uh, survive. Wow. That when a rabbit is adopted, that adoption fee goes back into, let's say, a general fund or a spay or neuter fund so that the next rabbit that comes in is able to be spayed or neutered because we've charged an adoption fee. So this might be a good... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Cassie. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that that's what your adoption fee goes for. It goes to help cover the cost of the rabbit that's in the rescue, as well as the next rabbit that's coming in to cover medical costs, which can be extremely high for rabbits. Yeah. Well, it's been also, like you say, it sounds like it's tricky because certain areas, at least, there's not the number of vets around that would be inclined to treat rabbits. So that makes, makes it even trickier, probably. It does. And, and one, of the, one of the local resources that, again, we're really fortunate to have is the University of Florida Small Animal Hospital. Yeah. Um, next week, we have a rabbit going in for a CAT scan, um, possible CAT scan, I should say. It's going to be evaluated by their vets, but I'm about 90% sure they're going to say, yes, he needs a CAT scan. Mm. And that's based on his regular exotic vet treating him for the last couple of months and saying, you know, we, we really need to do better diagnostics now. X-rays are not enough in this particular case. Uh, ultrasound is not enough. He does need a CAT scan. So we're going to bring him in. And those those medical treatments are not cheap. I'm uh, sure. Even for a rescue, they're not cheap. But we want to provide the best medical care we can for any of our rabbits that come into rescue. 
And he came in because his uh, his former owner actually abandoned him at a different vet's office mm. because they couldn't afford the treatment. Oh, wow. So, again, these are situations where we get take rabbits in from and try to give them the best medical care we can. And, again, this procedure, probably a CAT scan runs anywhere from about nine to $1,100. And so we rely on people who have adopted from us. We rely on the general public who love rabbits and don't want to see them not get the best care they can. Well, this might so be a good moment to mention that the website is GainesvilleRabbitRescue.org. So if you're listening and would like to maybe help pick up the cost of a CAT scan or the next CAT scan or just any kind of medical cost, you could donate that way and keep help keep Gainesville Rabbit Rescue going. So mention adoption and um, it seems like a, a core function of Gainesville Rabbit Rescue is placing bunnies in good loving homes. So I gather there's kind of an element of just good old fashioned matchmaking in these efforts where a certain rabbit gets placed in a certain home. Absolutely. Yes, it is, it is a matchmaking service and, and the outcome is usually uh, wonderful. So even though a family may be a great rabbit family, perhaps one of our rabbits by the name of Valentina may not be the right rabbit for them. But uh, another rabbit by the name of Crouton might be because he's super friendly. He's really nice. He's very sweet. Uh, Valentina is a little bit of an older rabbit, has a little bit, still has a little bit of an attitude. Um, so again, what we really want to do is if somebody puts in an application for a particular rabbit, we will try to explain to them why that rabbit's going to be great for them or why we feel that may not be the right choice for their family. So if a family has youngsters 10, 11, 12 years of age, we want to make sure that the rabbit that goes into that home is going to be a good choice for their family. And so we have some rabbits that we, Valentina is one of them. We we specify no children. We don't want her going into a home with small children because the children might be disappointed in her behavior. And so we, we want everyone to be happy, including, of course, the rabbit. And so we work very hard at that. Um, we also work very hard. When you go to a pet store and you buy a rabbit, you're probably there for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you walk out of there spending hundreds of dollars on things that the rabbit probably doesn't want and can't use. When you come to the rescue, you probably will spend at least a couple of hours. It's picking out your rabbit is us giving you the proper tool for you to be happy with your rabbit and for the rabbit to be happy with your family. There's nothing more upsetting than to take home an animal and realize maybe even a couple of days later, wow, this is not the right animal for my house. So we spend a lot of time talking to people, making sure that A, they know what they're getting into, which can be 10 to 12 year commitment with a rabbit and B that the rabbit that we send them home with is going to be the best possible choice that they can make out of the 90 rabbits we have. Um, we're going to narrow it down so that it's not overwhelming, especially when kids are involved. Wow. Okay. Let's take a call. We got a caller here and we got an email that I can probably only read a portion of and some other things, but let's try to get to some of that now. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Kathy Finelli. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having the greatest animal-centered show in the universe, Duncan. <laughs> I guess I guess you're still getting the checks I send you regularly, so that's um, appreciate no, I'm getting the good karma for 
for promoting Duncan, the hero of animal people everywhere. Uh, that's so, very kind. Thank you. And thank you for your guests for taking care of some of the sweetest, most innocent uh, animals that have evolved. I myself am a native uh, eastern cottontail rabbit preserver here in my small Largo backyard. And uh -huh. um, rabbits are suffering, native rabbits are suffering from, of course, the paving over of Florida. Dogs, uh, yard poisons, leaf blowers, heat, um, and cruelty. In my neighborhood, which is a upper middle class neighborhood, people are, are, they literally tell me, that by me providing a haven for the rabbits, I'm promoting vermin. One neighbor even told me, you're going to laugh, she told me that rabbits are vermin who can get in your attic. And I'm like, <laughs> those are super rabbits if they can jump that high. Absolutely. And they kill my rabbits. Like, these are not my rabbits. They're not pets. And believe me, they don't want to be domesticated, even though I give them all kinds of food. I've planted all kinds of edibles for them in my yard and, you know, watch their babies grow up, which is the cutest things in the world. They play like kittens. My neighbors, I'll find, you know, some of my rabbits dying from poison. And then I ask them, and they say, oh, rabbits are vermin, just like skunks and possums. Like, no native species is vermin. Oh, we yeah. are the invasive species here. I'm going to, you know, report you if you keep on doing this. So I called every Florida agency. Of course, you know, Florida is not friendly to animals. This is an anti-life uh, state with the GOP in control. And they, nobody will do anything. They're like, oh, well, there's plenty of rabbits. I'm like, no. When I first moved here 10 years ago in this neighborhood, there was about 200 rabbits. Now the, the only rabbits remaining are in my backyard. Right. And what people have to understand is that there is a, a, a huge difference between wild rabbits and pet rabbits. But wild rabbits take care of the environment. Wild yes. rabbits are what hawks eat. Wild rabbits are what eagles eat. And so in the western states, especially the state of Colorado, there is a, a disease known as rabbit hemorrhagic disease. Oh. And what's happening is the rabbits are wild rabbits are dying out. And they've already noticed the decline in the golden eagle population because right, right. golden eagles eat wild rabbits. So we're all interlocked here. Um, right. Wild rabbits have a place, and that's what their place is, to be the prey to wild animals. And unfortunately, some people think that pet rabbits are the same. So if you do a CAT scan of the, of the brain of a wild rabbit and a, and a pet rabbit, there's really very little difference until you get to the defense mechanism. <laughs> yeah. And then the wild rabbit is probably twice the size of the pet rabbits. I bet. <laughs> yeah, oh, and I watched the little babies. There, there's five of them at the start, and then one of them might make it. Right, right. Yeah, but I love them, and thank you for caring. I mean, when I have people that are uh, hostile towards some of the most sweetest creatures ever, or like boaters I know who hate manatees, there's something going wrong with our species yeah. that we're becoming such a brutal dominator, and it's great for this show of Duncan, because the people who come on here are the opposite of brutal dominators, and we need more like like you. Thanks so much for your call. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, that was, was nice. So uh, we're kind of nearing the end of our time, Kathy. Um, so one thing real quick, and unfortunately it has to be really quick, but I was going to get into food, and, and our caller sort of got into that a little bit. But I, as I recall, a rabbit's diet involves kind of a delicate balance. Just to, in, in a quick summary, what, what, what do they eat and what should they 
I guess more to the point, maybe in some cases for new rabbit people, what should they not eat? Uh, pet rabbits should eat strictly Timothy-based food products, whether it's Timothy-based food pellets, Timothy-based hay, if they're adults, alfalfa-based food products, if they're babies under six months of age, and then some fresh veggies every day. No carrots because they're, they have a lot of sugar in them. And that's what people have to watch when they feed their rabbits is what is the sugar content, what is the calcium content, and not too much calcium and really no sugar whatsoever. Yeah, so it's interesting that while there's a list of recommended vegetables on your website, which again is GainesvilleRabbitRescue.org, carrots are sort of not on that list. They're on a list of occasional treats, which some people might find counterintuitive, but that's exactly the kind of information that's provided all across the website. So again, it's GainesvilleRabbitRescue.org. We've been speaking with Kathy Finelli from Gainesville Rabbit Rescue. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. And again, I think a lot of folks learn a lot of things, and there's way more information they can track down on that website if they're so inclined. And hopefully they will thank send you, a couple you. of bucks your way through uh, through the website as well to help all your efforts. Keep. And thank you very much for having us and, and really letting people know what great pets they make and that there are still some issues with pet rabbits and wild rabbits, but we really appreciate the time you've spent with us. So thank you so much, and you, you have a great day now. All right. Thanks for all your great work. Thank you again. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye now. In a moment, I'll talk with Mark James in a follow-up interview to one we did in 2021 when he had first built a cabinet called Hank's Bark Box to honor his late great dog, Hank, creating a counterpart to those little free libraries, except instead of take a book, leave a book, it's more like take some pet food, leave some pet food in Hank's Bark Box located in St. Petersburg. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece from one of Norm MacDonald's visits to The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. In this appearance, he spent a moment addressing the then-recent death of Crocodile Hunter. It's the late, great Norm MacDonald here on Talking Animals on the Comedy Corner on WMNF. I wanted to talk about the Crocodile Hunter. Did you? Because I think... Yeah, they're, yeah you're yeah, going to yeah, make yeah, them yeah. sad. Because I think, you know, it was, it was tragic yes. at the time. But I think... <laughs> I don't know. People calling me, man, they're shocked. Oh, hey, you wouldn't believe it. Who got killed? The crocodile hunter. Don't, please don't make me laugh at this. This is not good to do. He was 44 years old. I'm like, that's a ripe old age for a crocodile hunter. That's not... Now, you know who had to be pissed about it were the crocodiles, because uh, he got killed by some fruity fish. And, uh, so, you know, you know the crocodiles were like, hey, man, that crocodile hunter got killed. Who did it, Frank? Uh, uh, you don't even want to know, man. Please, please don't do this anymore. This, this no, Bill, man, you had a chance. When the guy go, man, I had a chance. I had that mother... He was... He was Tommy with a stick. I could have eat him and his kid. I don't feel good about this. You remember I ever tell you that story, Bill? Yeah, only a thousand times. I'm sure the kids. All right, that was Norm MacDonald alongside John Stewart on The Daily Show in today's Comedy Corner, sharing some observations on the passing back then 
of the Crocodile Hunter. Now it's time to speak with Mark James about Hank's Bark Box, to which he offers pet food for the taking and accepts donations of pet food as well. This is Mark James back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Duncan. How are you, sir? I'm doing so well. Thanks uh, for joining us on Talking Animals. Let's start off with a few words about the dog. Uh, Hank's Bark Box pays tribute to Hank himself. We talked about him last time, but we should probably always discuss Hank's, especially given yeah. that his honoring here has resulted in this incredible thing that you're doing. Yeah, Hank was a he was a character. He was a dog we adopted from the SPCA. Um, he was a mix of just about everything. Uh, they said he was a German Shepherd mix, but I don't think he had any German Shepherd in him. <laughs> but a, a, anyway, he was just a little black and brown dog. and He became my my close friend, everywhere I went, I have a wood shop behind my house, and every day I go out to work, he'd come with me. And the reason we called it Hank's Bark Box was because he would bark at everything. He would bark at the wind, he would bark at people, he would bark at cars, he would bark at mosquitoes. He just barked at everything. Um, and so when he passed, you know, I was struggling with trying to come up with some sort of way to to honor his uh, memory, and, and we came up with this. That's great. So... People can see Hank's BarkBox on social media. They're not familiar with it before today. But maybe you could just sort of briefly describe it so they kind of get a running jump at what Hank's BarkBox is or what it looks like, kind of. Certainly, yeah. It's, it's, it's very similar to the free roadside people food pantries you see or the, the free roadside libraries. Um, it's just a very small two-square-foot box. It's in my front yard in my in front of my house. Um, it has two shelves in it. Bottom shelf is for cat food. Top shelf is for dog food. We um, repackage all of the donations that we get, bags of cat and dog food, uh, into one-gallon Ziploc bags. And we put those one-gallon Ziploc bags along with canned dog or canned cat food in it. It's available 24-7. Uh, it's, it's very popular, um, and it's very difficult to keep up with. Uh, there may be times that people show up, and there may not be what they're looking for in it. We fill it. Anywhere between four and six times a day. Wow. And we go through, on average, about 130 pounds of dry food a day, um, on average. There's some more, some less. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, the canned food is, is equally as popular. Um, and sometimes we don't have canned food, you know, because we just don't have any available. Yeah. But we, we put out whatever we can when we have it. But we always have dry food. Yeah, so there's always dry food, and I guess the canned food kind of comes and goes based on donations because that's kind of what keeps this thing going. Well, yeah, I mean, we buy a lot of food. It's probably, at, when we started, it was 100%. We, we were funding it, uh, and then it surprised us. People wanted to make donations. It never occurred to us that people would want to do that. It was never our intention, um, but people started to donate, and now it's probably, it's probably closer to 50-50, maybe even... 60, 40, 60% donations. Of oh, wow. That's a yeah. great trend that uh, sounds like it's developing uh, just over less than two years, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just less than two years. Yeah. No, that's great. And uh, just was noticing uh, this morning, just before coming on the air, that you had posted kind of like a tally, which I think the when when people hear some of these numbers, they might think, holy cow, if I wasn't aware yeah. of this, I should be, especially if you're in St. Pete, and especially, again, if you're in a kind of a rough patch and you're having a little bit of trouble feeding your dog or your cat, or, or conversely, if things are going well for you, and you can maybe donate some dog food or cat food to Hank's Bark Box. But here's what was posted uh, uh, just earlier today. 
on uh, social media. So dry dog food, 15,429 pounds. Canned dog food, 5,389 cans. Dry cat food, 9,805 pounds. Canned cat food, 19,769 pounds for a total of 20.25 tons of cat and dog food. It's all come through Hank's Bark Box in less than two years. I don't think people, when we came up with this idea, I thought it had been done before, so I didn't really think the idea was going to be all that popular. Uh, But when I did some research, I found out there really wasn't anything available for people like this out there. I mean, the SPCA, the Humane Society, do have a couple days a week where if you need food, you can stop by there for between a couple-hour window and pick up food, but you have to fill out paperwork and show that you're unemployed and that you're gainfully looking for employment, and you have to do this and you have to do that and jump through all these hoops. And the, the average person that's in need doesn't have the time, the patience, or the inclination to go through all of those hoops. I mean, it's great that they're out there, but our intention was to try and make it as easy as possible. And in doing so, we've uncovered, a, obviously, a huge need. I mean, when you figure that in less than two years, we've put 20.25 tons of food through a box that's two feet square that sits in my front yard. That is incredible. So as part of your research, have you found that since you launched Hank's Bark Box, some other places have maybe launched something similar or kind of followed suit in some way? I've had... I've had a lot of people say they want to do it. I've only had one person actually do it. Uh, they're in another part of St. Pete. But for whatever reason, it, it never took off. I, to be honest with you, I don't think people realize the amount of work that's required. I mean, when you talk about 20.25 tons of food, that resides in my two-bedroom home. Yeah. And and we take the large bags of food and repackage them into one-gallon Ziploc bags. We do this every single day. Day. Yeah, four, days. four to six times a day, you're saying. So that's a pretty serious commitment daily for days on end, weeks on end, months on end. And um, But it's obviously indispensable because, again, if you track, uh, you can see Hank's Bark Box has its own social media page, Facebook page in particular, I think. And you see that the people that write the notes and it, yeah. periodically, I remember the first time I saw this, and I'm curious to see what you have to say the first time it happened, where someone came by and cleared out the whole box. And uh, you think, wow, that's it's sort of not really in the spirit of Hank's Bark Box. But then you f- you, you, f- you find out, typically at least, that people were just... Super desperate. Anyways, Mark, sorry, I'm, we're at the end of our time, but Hank's Barkbox, St. Pete, look for on Facebook. We're almost out of time. It's NPR News coming up on WMNF Tampa. So so sorry, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye.